Election is that eternal act of God where he, in his sovereign good pleasure, and on account of no foreseen merit in men, chose a certain number of people to be the recipients of his eternal salvation. The New Testament doctrine of election is simple. God didn't draw straws. He didn't look down the corridor of time to see who would choose him before he decided. Rather, by his sovereign will, he chose who would be in the body of Christ. He acted totally independently of any outside influence. He made his choice apart from human will and purely on the basis of his sovereignty. Some people have tried to question if election is even taught in the Bible. I would tell you that a significant part of the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus Christ and the apostles must be denied if one denies the doctrine of election, since all the apostolic writers teach election. Think about these very familiar texts and these apostles. If we were to have, standing in front of you, the premier apostles this morning, we would hear the apostle Peter. We will see in just a moment. He begins his epistle by saying in verse 2, teaches about those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then in chapter 2, he will speak of believers as being a chosen generation. And then in Second Peter, he adds to that even more. And he says, brethren, be even all the more diligent to make your calling an election sure. Paul would quickly chime in with a lot. And he does, for example, in, in Ephesians 1.4, Paul would quickly add and say, Peter, you left something out. And that is that he, the Father, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then Paul in Romans 9 speaks about God's choice of one and not another when he says, When Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, the children not being yet born or having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to his election might stand, not of him who works but of him who calls. When Paul writes the church in Colossae, he writes to them in Colossians 3, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. At the close of his ministry, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Then the apostle John would, would chime in as well as he has done when he records the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, when Jesus makes it clear once and for all when he says, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should remain. Now I recognize that the doctrine of God's sovereign choice of some is always offensive to certain listeners. And there's a simple reason. Election puts the spotlight on God's greatness and it makes men small. It puts men in their place. It accentuates the creator-creature distinction, and creatures don't like that. They want to be big. God is so concerned that men get none of the glory, and he hates boasting so much that he's designed the salvation of men so that men can take absolutely no credit for anything. This doctrine, I will tell you this morning as we begin and as we will put it under the microscope in a moment, this doctrine of election is intended to humble men. God has so ordered his saving work so that no man 
will have anything to boast about. Others say, okay, Carl, I, I have to wave the white flag. I see it. It's biblical. I see it right here in the text that you're going to look at this morning. But do we have to talk about it? Can't we put it in the basement like our crazy uncle and never discuss it again? Well, I want to point something out just as far as apostolic placement. It's more than fascinating how the apostles, almost in every case, treat the doctrine of election first in their writings. They lead with it. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians, we don't even get to verse 4 before Paul is talking about election. He does the same thing in the letter to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 1. He does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1 in the letter to the Corinthian church. And today, what we're going to see is Peter brings this doctrine up in the first sentence of his apostle. That's because election is a foundational doctrine. It's primary. And so if you came here today saying, I'm ambivalent, well, okay, election, it's probably there. But it's not like central. No, it's central. It's a priority. It's foremost, and we're going to see that in the way that Peter teaches that to his hearers and readers this morning. Let's seek the help of the Lord at this time. O sovereign Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. That as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you had to say to us today. We pray in the name of our only mediator and savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We began last week by introducing you to the author, Peter. Today we will dig in on a several month journey of the epistles of Peter. I can almost guarantee you, God willing, on the first or second Sunday of 2024, I'll still be saying, take your Bible and turn to Peter. Well, what I want you to do is look at the first two verses of 1 Peter 1, and you will need your Bible because I want you to be convinced by seeing the word of God, not just my speaking. I want you to notice how Peter introduces himself. He introduces himself as an apostle. An apostle was a sent one, a messenger, an ambassador. What makes one an apostle? Well, first of all, they had to be chosen, called, and sent by Jesus. They had to have seen the resurrected Christ. They had to be endued with power by the Holy Spirit. And their ministry had to be authenticated by verified miracles. Few men, 15 as best as we can tell, bore this office and title. Those 15 would be the 11, after subtracting Judas the traitor. Matthias, Judas's replacement, listed for us in Acts 1, and we never hear from him again. Barnabas, we are told he's an apostle in Acts 14. James, the Lord's brother, we're told in Galatians 1. And of course, the one late to the show, Paul. We're told in Galatians 1. Peter didn't make himself an apostle. The king and head of the church, Jesus Christ, had commanded and called him to that office. And so Peter is beginning the letter. You will notice if you look at verse 1 by stating his source of authority. So when he states things that bother you, and he will. I can guarantee there are going to be things, especially as we get into the later chapters of 1 Peter, Peter will state things that trouble you, that you disagree with. Remember, he's a messenger. He's a mouthpiece. And who your real difficulty will be with is his sender, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
An apostle's task was to receive, transmit, and explain the message of God's saving plan, centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and to teach the implications of being a follower of Christ. And we're going to see Peter doing just that. He's going to teach the word of Christ and then explain the implications for worship, for gender, for marriage and family, for sexual ethics, for finances, for culture, and much more. And so once again, if you have a difficulty with any of Peter's teaching, what you really have is a problem with the one who sent Peter. Peter's just an apostle, just a mouthpiece. You have a difficulty with the Lord Jesus. Now notice how Peter identifies himself. He doesn't call himself the Pontifex Maximus, which is what the Roman Catholic Church's title is for their popes, the successors of Peter. By the way, every time you hear Rome do that, Pontiff or Pontifex Maximus means the chief bridge between God and man. But in 1 Peter 5, Peter will call himself by another title. When he speaks to elders, he simply calls himself your fellow elder. He could have said much about his status, that he'd been the daily companion of Jesus for three and a half years, that he'd been the witness to more miracles of Jesus than anyone else, that he'd been sent personally by Jesus. That he was the first to confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. That he was one of the first couple eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus on that first Sunday. That he'd been commissioned to make disciples of all nations in the Great Commission. That he was the acknowledged leader of the apostles. But Peter simply, look at verse 1, simply identifies himself as one of the apostles. He won't even say that the church is built upon him as Rome does. But he'll agree with his fellow apostle, Paul, who says, no, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles, plural, and prophets. Now, let me quickly clear up if you're thinking, well, yeah, Carl, I've heard some apostles. I may have even met one or two. And I've watched TV and I've heard people saying they're an apostle and to put my hand on the screen. And and no, no one today can claim the office of apostle. One of the movements that is profoundly aberrant in our day is the new apostolic reformation. I will tell you the office of apostle ended with the death of the apostle John. We need no more apostles because the function of the apostle being a conduit of revelation ended with the completed canon of the New Testament. There are no apostles. If you want to hear the word of the Lord, simply open your Bible. Notice who this letter is to. Look as well in verse 1. It's addressed to pilgrims. Pilgrims in five locations. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, Peter, a Jew, would have naturally regarded Gentiles with scorn and suspicion. He had originally been sent, you remember, by Jesus in Matthew 10, to the house of Israel. And Peter was more shocked than anyone, even after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, when God, in a vision, commanded him to eat food that wasn't kosher in Acts 10. And only after the Lord's rooftop session of reorientation was Peter compelled to go to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile army officer. And then he explained that God's revelation had overcome his conviction that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile. It's this apostle who writes to Gentiles predominantly. Look carefully at verse 1. When he tells who he's writing to, 
This would have been in the area of the world now known as Turkey. And he greets them, this is staggering, as God's elect. He calls them pilgrims of the dispersion. Now this term, the diaspora, or or the dispersion, had previously been used as a title for Jews who'd been captured and taken away from their homeland and forced deportations by the Assyrians and Babylonians. But Peter, look at that term in verse 1, is using the term dispersion to refer to both Jews and in large measure Gentiles who are scattered all over the world. They're pilgrims, meaning they're transients, on their way to another country, a better, a heavenly country. They carry another passport. They're on a pilgrimage to the city of God. This pattern, by the way, began with Abraham in Genesis 23 and Jacob in Genesis 47. After the exodus from the Egyptian bondage, Israel made the journey through the wilderness to the land of promise. That wilderness experience of traveling, wandering, became the model for God's people on pilgrimage. God, on the pilgrimage, provided for them, protected them, led them until they reached their home. This pilgrim journey is spoken of in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. When the writer of Hebrews 11 says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. They were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were but strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That's the sense that Peter means it when he writes to these people. He's calling them people who are not at home here in this world. The pilgrim journey, by the way, is your story and mine. Peter doesn't call us as Christians to flee from the world, nor does he write to isolated individualistic pilgrims traveling a lonely way through the desert. Peter, in writing to the scattered Christians, is writing to them as a community. They're the people of God, the pilgrim people of God in the world. Like the dispersion of old, this new Israel that Peter writes to, made up of Jews and Gentiles, will be recognized by this, their holy lives. These new covenant believers living in hostile places are not to regard Cappadocia or Bithynia as their home, Their true home lies elsewhere. They're not to give their allegiance, hear me carefully, to any earthly nation. This is why Peter wants them to recognize who they are in relation to the surrounding world. Peter agrees with his fellow apostle John, who's already written in 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Peter and John would agree that the believer is not to love the world. And temporary residents are not to get too involved in this world's affairs. But then Peter says something shocking. Look at verse 2. Peter writing to these largely Gentiles that he lists in five places, currently in Turkey. He tells Gentiles, and you need to put your seatbelt on when he does this. He tells Gentiles that they're elect. This is staggering and stunning. Now, we know that many of the recipients of this letter are Gentiles, and I want to prove that to you because we're going to be, we're going to be counting on this frequently as we go through First Peter, that Peter's writing to Gentiles. For example, look at First Peter 1, verse 18. Just look down the page in your copy of God's Word, chapter 1, verse 18. And Peter speaks of, The empty way of life 
that had been handed down from their forefathers. Peter wouldn't have described Jews that way. The forefathers of Jews would have been God-fearing people, not those who lived empty lives. But then look at chapter 4, verse 3 of 1 Peter. Peter describes their past lives, look in chapter 4, verse 3, as debauchery, lust, drunkenness, idolatry. No Jew would have described any other Jew this way. He's talking about Gentiles. That's largely who his letter is written to. And so notice what he says about them. Again, these are stunning words in chapter 1, verse 2. That they're elect. Now, election, let me remind you, is according to God's pleasure, we're told in Ephesians 1. It pleased him. It gave him joy and delight to choose his people. Election is particular and definite. God chose a certain number to whom he'll give eternal life. He knows them by name. This number can neither be increased or diminished. Their names, we are told repeatedly, the names of the elect, and whether it's Luke 10 or Philippians 4, they're written down in God's book of life. And we're told in Revelation 17 that other names are not written there. Though the elect are known to no one else, Second Timothy, Paul tells us God knows them all. And what you and I are to see when we think of election is God was thinking of you before the foundation of the world. These thoughts were loving and benevolent, determining determining that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ should be yours. Because your election was settled before history began, it's not possible for anything in time or history to unsettle it. This provides believers with unshakable confidence, which is precisely the way Peter's fellow apostle Paul applies it in Romans 8 when he says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, of course, you know what the objection is to election. When you stare at those words in verse 2, again, Peter is still in his first sentence of his book. The objection is, this is unfair. That God is not being fair. And of course, we as Americans really care about fairness. I've told you the story before that when our children were small and whenever they would say something was not fair, we'd say, we don't care about fairness in this house. And, and so we were driving home one day from a basketball game and son James had his best buddy Brad Bankston sitting in the back seat. And, and so I reached back and I gave each of the kids a, a treat and and I gave oldest son John a treat that was quite a bit bigger. And I looked at Brad in the rearview mirror, and he looked at his treat and looked at James's treat and looked at John's. He said, hey, Mr. Robbins, this isn't fair. And immediately both sons on either side clapped their hands over his mouth and said, shh, don't say anything about fair to my dad. He doesn't believe in such thing as fairness. We'll get a 30-minute sermon if you say something about fair. And so Brad's like, what? This is America. I thought we believed in fairness. Well, so that's really the issue that people will raise when it comes down to it over and over again. In every age, there have been those who have argued that God is unjust. They say it's not fair that God should single out certain ones for eternal life and permit others to be damned. But such a charge evidences profound ignorance and perverts the fundamental principles of the gospel. Because salvation is not a question of justice but of grace. If the matter is to be settled on the basis of justice, then 
every child of Adam must perish. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. To say that God has no right to single out only certain ones to be conformed to the image of his son is to repudiate the cardinal fact of the gospel. Salvation is not a wage that we earn. It's a free gift bestowed upon the undeserving. But the moment we grant that salvation is God's gift, we are logically compelled to accept the principle of election. Doesn't God have a perfect right to dispense his gift as he pleases? Certainly he does. And not only is this his prerogative, but he exercises it. God is indebted to no one. He's not under obligation to save any. And if he delivers any from wrath, it is only and solely due to his grace. I cannot overemphasize the depth which we believe this here at Woodruff Road. This is our public theology. We're not embarrassed of it. We talk about it at every opportunity. Every minister, elder, and deacon in the PCA must believe and teach this and has taken public vows saying, this is my doctrine. But Peter has much more to say. Look in verse 2. Peter is setting forth a Trinitarian model of redemption, showing that each of the three persons are involved in your salvation. Now, he's just spoken of the Father, one of the Father's tasks. Notice what it is there in verse 2. It is choosing a people. And so Peter's not going to stop there. Now he raises one of the Holy Spirit's tasks, and that is sanctifying that same people. And the particular evidence of that sanctification is the elect person's obedience to the commands of God. Look at how he states it. He says, after stating the Father's role, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, now in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. And so what Peter now brings up is, is the Spirit is going to be deeply at work in that elect person to bring about the condition of obedience and loving the commands of God. And remember, sin is always lawlessness. That's how John defines sin in 1 John 3, 4. Satan is called the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. The lost man will be condemned on the day of judgment when Jesus says to them, according to the Sermon on the Mount, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. But the maturing believer, the one indwelt by the blessed third person of the Trinity, loves the law of God and says with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day long. It's interesting that the Greek word used, look at your copy in verse 2, the Greek word used for sanctification speaks of ongoing and continuing and progressive activity. And what we are meant to understand is, is that the Holy Spirit who comes in and dwells, the elect believer, will cause him to in a greater and greater measure to love obedience to the commands of God. And so the new believer, he loves obedience a little bit. The maturing believer loves obedience more, but the mature believer positively embraces with delight the law of God. We believe in progressive sanctification, not regressive. But then the whole role of the Trinity is shown by the end of the verse. Look at verse 2. And we see there 
that the work of Christ, the second person of the Godhead, is, is spotlighted now. The sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. These believers, these elect believers who were chosen by the Father in eternity past, who are indwelt by the Spirit and caused to love the law of God, these believers are a people, here's their identification point, who have all been sprinkled by the atoning blood of Jesus. Peter is referring, of course, to that great account of covenant initiation. And he's schooling his Gentile readers. Keep one finger here and look back at Exodus chapter 24. And I want you to see what he's referring to. In Exodus 24, now, Peter is thinking as he writes. He has just written these words that the elect believer is known by his obedience. And then they are sprinkled by the blood of Christ. And so Peter says, oh, here's this incident in the life of Israel where believers pledge their obedience to God's command and they were sprinkled. Pick up the narrative in Exodus 24 verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. They are pledging their obedience. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord, Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. And so Peter now is writing to his Gentile readers, and he's saying, you've symbolically been sprinkled with this atoning blood of Jesus. Just as Moses sprinkled the blood of a spotless sacrifice on the people of God. Now in the new covenant, you and I have not been sprinkled by the blood of bulls and goats or oxen, but by the blood of the Lamb of God. Notice how Peter concludes this first context. He has a benediction. Pastor Dodds will in the second hour be talking about teaching on benedictions. But it's interesting how Peter and Paul and the other apostolic writers, how they move such benedictions around. Sometimes they're at the end of the letter. But notice how Peter begins his letter. The last words he says in verse 2 are, Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now before you read past it and think this is just a form greeting, these are profoundly theological words. They tell us much about man's sorry condition and God's great love for sinners. Grace, when you look at the end of verse 2, grace is God's saving kindness to the undeserving. Peace is reconciliation with God when we've been his enemies. This is only accomplished by the work of Christ when he turns away the wrath of the Father by his substitutionary death. Letters in the first century open in a very conventional way. If you were to write a letter to somebody, you would have your name, followed by the name of the recipient, 
followed by greetings. And that's what Peter does here. But here's a marvelous example of Peter turning into a gospel opportunity, something as simple as the beginning of a letter. Because the traditional written greeting in the Greek world was kyrene, meaning greetings. But in Peter's hands, this becomes charis, grace, to which he adds the traditional Jewish greeting, shalom, which means peace, but much more, including well-being, which was the standard Hebrew greeting. So, so get a picture here. Peter is saying charis and shalom a Greek greeting, and a Hebrew greeting. And in combining the Hebrew and the Greek greetings, the Jewish and the Gentile greetings, Peter is saying something powerful about the church, namely that the church should be integrated and should include and be for both Jews and Gentiles. That Paul writes about that middle wall in Ephesians 2 that had formerly separated Jews from Gentiles has been torn down, and therefore both greetings should be used. These words, look at them there at the end of verse 2, grace and peace. These words are the Christian and biblical way of speaking and greeting. And yet they sound strange to modern ears because we've been secularized and because few know what grace or peace are. Grace is how we're saved, according to Ephesians 2. Mercy means I do deserve punishment from God, but don't receive it. Grace means I don't deserve eternal life and blessing from God, but I do receive it. Notice as well the blessing of peace. Peter's benediction to them. Grace and peace. It's Peter's second desire for his readers that they be marked by peace. What's Peter talking about? This desire of Peter's can't be appreciated until we understand that God is the enemy of the wicked. And at war with them. His wrath is directed towards them. Because we were born in sin, our relationship to God was characterized by rebellion. We were even called God's enemies. Criminals legitimately fear ruthless human avengers. How much more should guilty men fear an inescapable avenger? One who knows our hideouts before we get there. One who has vowed to track us down. Against such a holy and furious avenger, peace would have a world of meaning. It would be our highest hope and deepest longing. But Isaiah 57 says there is no peace for the wicked. Even though we once were enemies and our relationship with God was as a combatant and a sworn opponent. Now, only because of the justifying work of Christ, we have peace. Listen to these glorious words. Paul writing in Romans 5 says, Therefore, having been past tense, justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In this peace, all the former enmity is taken away. God desists from being at wrath, now being reconciled by the blood of his Son. And believers desist from this warfare against God, having received a new heart by the Holy Spirit. The Lord makes the elect partakers of this peace by bringing them into covenant with him, which is called the covenant of peace. By means of the gospel, he calls and invites men to enter into this covenant, which is called the gospel of peace. How do we apply this word? I want to make two very simple, weighty observations. 
First is Peter's Trinitarianism, which is on display right here in the first two verses. Peter's Trinitarianism, the work of each of the three persons of the Godhead, is clearly enunciated right out of the chute. Now, I want you to think about how much an issue this is for us to be Trinitarian. We, each Lord's Day, we sing a Trinitarian song in every service. Whether it's the doxology or the Gloria Patri, we sing one of them in our morning and evening service. We don't want to risk that a person could ever come here and not know that we are Trinitarian. That we believe in one God eternally existing in three co-equal persons. And that's what Peter does. He puts the Trinity and those roles on display at the very beginning. He shows you the person of the Father who has chosen you in eternity past. He shows you the person of the Son who has sprinkled you with his blood. He shows you the person of the Spirit who is sanctifying you and working obedience in you. These three great works, by the way, are not a pick and choose. When you look at these three great works, you think, hmm, election, atonement, and sanctification. I really like election. The other two, atonement, it's bloody, sanctification sounds like a lot of work. I'll stick with election. Now, they're a package deal. You cannot say, well, God chose me and atoned for me, but I know nothing of the Spirit's power in a deepening desire for holiness. Those three things you see. See them there in verses 1 and 2? The Father chose The Spirit sanctifies. The Son atones. That can be said of every single believer. The second application. I said it at the beginning of this sermon. I'll say it again. Peter's doctrine of sovereignty and election is stated in the first sentence of his epistle so that the reader cannot avoid it. Peter is not embarrassed to lead with this. This morning, if you are bothered by God's choosing a great number from every tribe, nation, and tongue to save, my friend, I'd plead with you to repent and to dance with delight that he loved you so much that he set his affection on you before he even spoke the solar systems in place. Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you for the revelation of your triune being. And we adore you for your eternal act of love, choosing a people for yourself. And so now, loosen our tongues and empower us to boast in your electing grace and thus give all glory to you. We pray in the name of the one who has sprinkled us with his blood, even Jesus Christ. Amen.